0: Welcome to Curated Conversations from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, bringing you the best events each week from the world's number one defense and national security think tank. To explore the hundreds of events we host each year, visit us at CSIS.org.
1: A new report that he's working on that will come out uh, hopefully relatively soon on prospects for U.S.-Russia arms control, Um, and then we'll have commentary from Sharon Scorsoni before opening it up to discussion. Uh, Andrei, as I mentioned, is a visiting fellow in the Russian Eurasia program right now. Uh, besides that, he is a consultant at the Pierce Center uh, in Moscow and a research fellow at the Center for Global Trends and International Organizations at the Russian Diplomatic Academy. Uh, Sharon is uh, currently based at George Washington University and is a longtime uh, expert on uh, nuclear energy, nuclear weapons, risk reduction, arms control, and many other things, uh, has worked at the State Department, Defense Department, Congressional Research Service, and of course here at CSIS. Um, so please uh, silence your cell phones and other noise-making devices, um, and join me in welcoming uh, our presenter, Andrei Baklitsky.
2: Thank you, Jeff. Um, I understand that probably a lot of you would be much more interested in discussing the latest um, shifts in the Russian government, not the future of arms control, but uh, that was completely um, unexpected. So I'll stick to the arms control. We'll probably do event Yeah, we can just. Interesting things happening in Russia. Uh, I would like to start with thanking uh, CSS, Russia and Eurasia program, Jeff. Uh, Roxana who's in the back um, for making this event possible. I'm also grateful to Sharon to um, agreeing to discuss my ideas and It's also great to see many familiar faces in the audience Uh, some really smart people so Maybe it means that there is some interest in arms control after all and maybe We'll get out of this room today. with slightly better understanding of what to do with it Um, I would stress that I speak in my expert capacities and my views in no way represent the position of a Russian Diplomatic Academy or the Russian Foreign Ministry. So our topic today is uh, the prospects for U.S. Russian arms control and what could future U.S. Russian arms control look like. It's obviously a huge topic and uh, I'll try to squeeze it uh, in around 20 minutes, so I'll try to be brief. And I'll touch on four main issues. First, where we are now, and what are the most pressing issues at hand? What could multilateral arms control look like? Um, What could bilateral arms control look like in the future? And what will we do if we don't have any formal arms control treaties? Which is also a possibility. So the first thing we have to understand, and I guess a lot of majority of people would agree with me, is that arms control is essentially a form of managing military competition. Mm-hmm. Sometimes countries decide that it's in their interest to limit military competition, sometimes it decides that it's not in their interest and unrestricted competition serves them better. But with nuclear weapons, at some point we agreed that unrestricted nuclear competition doesn't really look promising. So there is general understanding that we don't want to have global arms races we had like in the 70s, but from there we have a lot of disagreements on specifics. So during the Cold War, its ups and downs, we basically got to the point when we decided to limit and then cut our strategic armaments, strategic nuclear weapons, from salt to New START. Then we agreed not to deploy missile defenses, strategic missile defenses that could threaten those systems. And finally, we agreed to get rid of some of the shorter-range systems which were deployed in the most combustible part of the world at that time in Europe on the front line between NATO and Warsaw Pact. That's INF Treaty. I don't need to tell this audience how those treaties are going. You all know that pretty well. So where are we now and what are we facing now? Well, the first thing is, uh, of course, the New START Treaty. It expires in about a year. It can, only, it can be extended up to five years. In U.S., that would be done by executive action. In Russia, you would need to pass a federal law uh, ratifying the extension of the New START Treaty. Russia had on a number of occasions at the highest level said that it's interested in extension, it's ready for extension. US is in the third year of interagency process, apparently, on deciding uh, should it extend or not. Um, Russia has some issues with uh, US implementation of the New START Treaty, mainly with conversions of uh, US heavy bombers and sea launched ballistic um, missile silos under the New START. However, last year President Putin said that Russia is ready for a clear extension, clean extension, and uh, we can discuss those issues in bilateral consultative commission, so there is no problem there. Uh, U.S. has also raised some issues of um, technical nature I will not be going into them for brevity. You can ask me in Q&A if you want. Uh, the one visible issue that U.S. has with New START treaty is the accounting of new Russian strategic systems. As you know, on March 1, 2018, in his Azure, uh, address to Federal Assembly, uh, President Putin announced five new strategic systems: a heavy ICBM, a boost light vehicle, a hypersonic uh, launched ballistic missile, air-launched ballistic missile, uh, a nuclear intercontinental torpedo, and a uh, nuclear-powered cruise missile. So U.S. officials insist that those should be covered under the New Start, and uh, U.S. Secretary of Defense Mark Esper went even further, saying. That if there is going to be an extension of New Start, then we need to make sure we include all of those weapons that Russia is pursuing. Well, Russia has already agreed that avant-garde, the boost-glide system, is covered, and the, the New Start. Uh, it was recently demonstrated to U.S. inspectors. Um, they have ACBM, the heavy ICBM, the Sarmat, once it will become prototype, and then ICBM, it will be also covered by New Start. Uh, Russian position is that two other. Uh, systems, the um, cruise missile and the torpedo are not um, new kinds of strategic offensive arms in the treaty because you would need to amend the treaty to have this, which would need ratification, which is pretty much a non-starter at the moment. Um, However, both systems are at early stages of development which means they'll probably not be deployed uh, in the time frame of new start, so we might not as well worry about them. The last one, Kinjal, the hypersonic uh, air-launched ballistic missile um, doesn't fall under the definition of uh, strategic arms because of the range. Uh, It's mounted on uh, MiG-31 aircraft. It's too short uh, distance to to be strategic weapons. It cannot hit targets in continental US. Uh, So to wrap it up, uh, decision to extend New START is almost entirely political at the moment. Uh, There are no issues with implementation of the treaty that would preclude it. Russia has made a decision and I can tell you there have been different opinions inside the Russian government about this thing. On avant-garde, for example, there will be strong legal opinions that avant-garde should not be included because it doesn't uh, follow the ballistic trajectory, for example, but there was a political decision made that we will go for accounting and for extension. Um... Will this happen? Uh, nobody knows. Uh, I have an ongoing bet uh, for a bottle of whiskey, mm, so it's still you know, open-ended. Uh, the other thing we are facing at the moment, uh, quite challenging, it's the INF Treaty, and post-INF Treaty developments. It has been six months since the U.S. left the treaty, and uh, this seems to be a done deal. There are no efforts or no interests in respecting the treaty in its previous form. However, this doesn't mean that the situation we are in now is uh, really sustainable. Uh, We have witnessed U.S. testing intermediate-range ballistic missile, which is a new thing. Even U.S. have not accused Russia of uh, producing or testing those class of weapons. And I'll remind you that those are the weapons which led us to the your uh, missile crisis in the first place because nobody cared about cruise missiles at that time. The thing which people cared were intermediate-range ballistic missiles, the um, Pioneer and then uh, Pershing too. Uh, Russia on its part as a part of scheduled modernization will be equipping its Iskander missile brigades with 9M729 missiles, which West believes uh, to be of intermediate range Russian disputes says it is not of intermediate range, but uh, the logic of uh, just changing the older missiles with new missiles will lead to getting more and more uh, brigades equipped with 9M729. So I I would imagine that would be a problem for Europeans and for U.S., which would ask for some kind of reaction. Uh, If there are those or other deployments, we might face um, a new missile arms race in Europe but also in Asia, if its deployments will be in Asia. Again as you probably will know, Russia has proposed a, a moratorium on INF-range deployment. President Putin saying that Russia will not deploy its missiles in the regions where U.S. has not deployed its missiles and later on uh, President Putin has sent out uh, letters with this proposal to basically all major stakeholders, NATO countries, NATO Secretary General, US President, and so on and so forth. Mm, there was a very brief and non-substantial response from the US, uh, and the only country which engaged on the merit was France. Um, no other responses were received from, from NATO states or uh, other countries. Uh, which could be uh, interested in this issue. Um, it's easy to joke on Twitter that Russia is only interested in moratorium of uh, weapons of other countries, not of its own. But uh, and we all here have great sense of humor. But unless somebody has any other coherent strategy of how to deal with uh, the situation we are in, maybe Russian proposal is worth examining, Um, because, again, in this letter, as far as we know, uh, President Putin proposed uh, to have some verification measures uh, for this initiative, uh, which, again, remind you, were not present in the INF Treaty, Uh, they expired in 2001, and uh, that could be a starting point for some negotiations. Um, I would say that Russia has been acting with restraint. Russia has not answered to US cruise missile test in August and then ballistic missile test and uh, frankly it would be quite easy for Russia to put Caliber on a truck and launch it from the truck just to show at least to its population or to send a message or to do anything. Nothing was done. There was no Russian response. So. Maybe uh, this should be also interpreted as a uh, reason to uh, start talking because w- once you start testing something when Russia tests its uh, IRBM and starts deploying those it might be um, we might be in worse conditions for uh, talks uh, so on multilateral negotiations, uh, there is this idea in Washington uh, that next rounds of talks should include also China, and that's another problem with the New Star Treaty. It doesn't include China, so um, this trilateral format has been proposed. Uh, frankly, I'm not sure why U.S. would want to have trilateral mm-hmm. negotiations uh, where two sides would be naturally coordinating against it and what mm-hmm. merits does it give to the United States, mm-hmm. but of course that's, a, that's an option. When people say that we cannot do this, um, I would say it's not true. We can do it. We had examples of multilateral arms control in the past. And we even had multilateral nuclear arms control uh, when Soviet Union disappeared. Uh, its successor states became parties to INF treaty, to START treaty, and uh, we even have inspections. From multiple countries uh, inspecting nuclear uh, weapons. However, it's quite a different situation. Uh, we had like collective partying, which all of the successor states of the Soviet Union were together, and uh, it was mainly former Soviet diplomats who became then Kazakh, Ukraine, uh, Russian, and so on diplomats. So it's quite a big difference from what we have now in China. And we also don't have any experience of negotiating uh, bilateral nuclear arms control. China has, on multiple occasions, stated that uh, it's not interested in any way in engaging in those kind of negotiations. Mm. We haven't seen any coherent U.S. proposal, also on this um, issue. We've heard that might. One might be coming early this year, at least that's what uh, US officials have been saying. It would be much more interesting to discuss the substance than just discuss it in abstract, but from, I was hearing from my um, Chinese colleagues, they would be saying like, look, we haven't seen any proposals how you account our nuclear weapons, for example, under New START rules, because under New START rules, China has zero deployed nuclear weapons. They do not deploy warheads. Apparently, on their um, delivery systems, which means that, that there's no issue for control, and so on and so forth. Um, frankly, I would say Russia is not interested in nuclear strategic arms control with China for a lot of reasons. Uh, one of them would be that uh, where we do care about arms control with China, we already have it. And there is an example of uh, conventional arms control with China, where we limit number of troops we both have during, uh, along our border. Uh, and we have inspections there, we have verification mechanism, exchange of information. So basically, Russia does what it believes it needs to do. And it f- obviously doesn't uh, feel the need to have strategic arms control with China relations between the countries are quite good at the moment, and even if they change, I don't think that strategic nuclear weapons would be the biggest threat. Uh, probably non-strategic nuclear weapons would be much more uh, important in this context. Um, as I said, Russia would, is not really interested. It wouldn't be against uh, this approach. If China agrees, there will not be you no know, Russian... Uh, objections and Russia would participate in those negotiations, uh, but Russia obviously wouldn't be doing anything to push for China to participate. Generally as an expert I believe it's a worthy goal to at least conceptualize how this arms control could look like and probably we should uh, work on this. But frankly, current US approach really looks like it's doomed to fail. And if it fails, the whole idea of trilateral arms control could be buried uh, beneath it. So maybe if we have this one shot, maybe we shouldn't just you know use it um, like this. Maybe we should go in prepared, and maybe we should be doing something about it. I have some ideas on that, but I will not be going into details. Um, okay, so new bilateral negotiations. What would be on the table? if we continue moving forward, because both countries have said they want a number of things uh, which are currently not in the existing New START treaty. Uh, well, US um, has concerns with Russian non-strategic nuclear weapons about the disparity in numbers of those weapons. And it dates basically to 1990s, early 1990s. Uh, interestingly, before that, the issue was reversed. It was Soviet Union who was concerned with U.S. non-strategic nuclear weapons in Europe, and uh, U.S. was mainly concerned with other things. So the resolution of uh, advice and consent to ratification of New START tasked administration to start negotiating with Russia on tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, that never happened. Uh, and uh, Secretary of Defense, uh, Mark Esper, in his advanced policy questions before his nomination, uh, said that he believed it was time to bring all of the Russian nuclear arsenal into next treaty. Russia was never happy about that approach. Um, lower House of Russian Parliament um, issued a statement uh, accompanying the ratification of New START, which basically said that a lot of other issues should be dealt with, but specifically one thing it was uh, naming was U.S. tactical nuclear weapons in Europe. And uh, Russian Foreign Minister Sergey Lavrov, speaking at the conference of disarmament, said the first step to solve this issue of tactical nuclear weapons should be withdrawal of tactical nuclear weapons to the territory of the possessor state and dismantlement of the infrastructure for deployment abroad. So wh- if U.S. would want to raise this issue, then this would be a counter-proposal uh, from the Russian side. Generally, we never had Experience with dealing with uh, tactical nuclear weapons arms control. Um, In 1997, uh, Bruce Yeltsin and uh, Bill Clinton agreed that in the context of starts renegotiations, the experts will look at some of the options for tactical nuclear weapons arms control. Uh, However, proper starts renegotiations never started, so it never happened. If we would want to discuss those issues, we'll have to do much work on everything starting from definitions and terminology and uh, figuring out how do you control non-deployed warheads, which the majority of tactical nuclear weapons are, and the delivery systems for all of them will be dual capable, so you couldn't just, you know, cut the delivery systems. Um, so, in, in this sense, this is, like, a very distant goal, and maybe we would be starting with something like verification of absence of tactical nuclear weapons in specific Regions or areas which at least you can verify. The um, second thing I already mentioned are new Russian strategic systems. Uh, as I said, two of them are already accounted under the new start. Um, those which are not accounted, of course, could be the um, could be discussed in the future negotiations. Uh, President Putin in his 2018 NBC interview said that. Uh, in the context that the number of delivery vehicles and the number of warheads they the new weapons can or will carry should of course be included in grand total. Uh there is a good case to be made that at least some of the new Russian systems were developed with possibility of being used as bargaining chips in future negotiations. Uh, because this whole Putin speech on March 1st was generally the military part of it was an invitation uh, for the arms control dialogue with the U.S. and um, Poseidon and briefestings, the torpedo and the cruise missile with very high technical complexity, long and sometimes tragic R&D cycle, a lot of open questions about how you integrate there in Russian military sinking or war fighting. Uh, they seem the best candidates for, for this, for being traded away. Um, and we also have seen previously Russian uh, weapon systems shelved when the conditions changed, be it uh, Barguzin, Rail Mobile System, or RS-24, RS-26, sorry, um, uh, light ICBM. But if this indeed is the case, and those would be on the table for, for uh, negotiations, uh, since mm-hmm. both systems were specifically designed to defeat missile defenses, you might expect that Russia would want cuts in missile defenses if if those systems will be traded away. Uh, Another thing which people have been talking about a lot in in D.C., not in the current administration, uh, but mostly on the Democratic side, are further cuts. Uh, Further cuts in numbers of strategic deployed systems. In 2013, uh, Barack Obama proposed cutting another third of uh, Russian U.S. arsenals. It didn't get a very um, positive response from Moscow, partly because relations were really deteriorating between the countries, partly because further cuts would just exacerbate all existing problems, like ABM, like precision-guided conventional missiles, and so on and so forth, because obviously, the less weapons you have, uh, the more you will care for their survivability. And if US missile defenses obviously cannot absorb 1,500 Russian missiles, can they absorb 1,000? Can they absorb 500, 300? Each time you go down, those questions are getting more and more prominent. Um, however, mm, with new Russian missile systems specifically tasked, activating uh, U.S. missile defenses and uh, with increase in Russian strategic uh, conventional capabilities. Maybe there is more opening uh, for this now, and in 2018, President Putin said that uh, if we are ready to continue this dialogue, uh, we can agree on reduction or retaining current terms. Uh, however, today, when we're acquiring weapons that can easily breach all anti-ballistic missile systems, we no longer consider the reduction uh, of ballistic missiles and warheads to be highly critical in the sense that Russia wouldn't be that much against it. Um, the question obviously will be what exactly US is going to be cutting and proposing to Russia. Again, as far as we can understand, U.S. mainly talks about cutting its uh, land-based, silo based ICBMs, which would not be most interesting for Russia, yeah. frankly, to be cut. Um, Russia would obviously be much more interested in cutting uh, U.S. um, ballistic missile submarines. Um, Previously Russia also said that uh, future cuts uh, are impossible without uh, participation of uh, France and um, UK. Um, So that would also be an issue, though previously U.S. has never agreed to include its allies. Also, I can't imagine any new cuts uh, before there is some sort of solution to INF range systems in um, Europe and Asia, uh, because, uh, again, if we have intermediate range systems, uh, US intermediate range system deployed in Europe, especially IRBMs, that would be a big problem for Russian uh, nuclear forces, command and control, um, for Russia all systems that US puts in uh, Europe are basically strategic systems because they can hit Russian national territory unlike Russian tactical systems for the US <coughs> so if we don't have any some kind of solution to INF French systems um, problem I don't see any possibility for cuts what would Russia want uh, in any future negotiations if they go uh, beyond what we have now? Uh, well, uh, ballistic missile defenses, obviously. It doesn't mean that Russia would want to get back to the ABM Treaty. Well, Russia might want to get to the ABM Treaty, but obviously that's not possible anymore. Um, from what I understand, uh, Russia is not super um, uncomfortable with US ground based interceptors, the GBIs, or the continental uh, missile defenses. Uh, what Russia um, is, and one of the reasons is basically the numbers of GBI's are still below the limits that U.S. was able to deploy under the uh, ABM treaty. Well, the numbers of ICBMs also went down, but still, you, you, can, you can see how that uh, goes. Uh, Russian Russia is mostly concerned with uh, Aegis and Aegis Ashore and of course space-based interceptors, uh, which I will touch in a minute. Uh, And one of the big problems that Russia sees here is the integration of those systems into global uh, missile defense system. That's why, for example, Aegis Ashore in Japan is also a big concern for Russia. Russia sees this as just connecting the dots and building a global network which can target uh, its uh, nuclear forces in the future. Because if you have launchers, you upgrade your, Uh, interceptors and all of a sudden uh, you get um, new capabilities. Mm. Where we can go from now, I'm not sure we have not had substantial discussions on the missile defenses in a while. Um, We had uh, some interesting experience in the 90s when we had the uh, Memorandum of Understanding um, on the treaty, of the ABM treaty, uh, where we basically agreed uh, that uh, for not the strategic missile defense systems but the tactical missile defense systems, we would limit the velocity of interceptor, velocity of ballistic target missile, and the range of ballistic target missile. So uh, you can see something about like okay, we don't care what you do with your territory, but out of your territory, might want to to discuss some limits uh, on those things, which again uh, might be a starting point for a discussion if someone is interested to in having one. Um, ABM actually, if you remember, had air uh, Twitter reviews. Every five years when um, the countries come together to discuss how it went, so if we could reach such an agreement and say like, okay, so those are the missile threats at the moment, uh, what kind of interceptors you would need against the PRK missiles, for example, and you limit it to that, in five years we can meet again and look if the situation changed. Maybe we can reconsider and uh, have different limits, but that again is just a proposal. Another thing which Russia is uh, pretty much concerned with is space, Um, well, placing weapons in outer space will threaten Russian satellites, Uh, ABM in space is a huge uh, issue for Russia because it's one of the most probably feasible ways of uh, creating real working missile defense. And then space attack uh, land uh, weapons, space uh, land attack weapons are also an issue. Uh, Though much less of an issue because they were not banned, they're still not banned under any agreement, uh, but nobody has ever put them out there, which means it probably is not a great idea uh, to put them there. Um, Unlike the ABM, which Russia was, you know, spending a lot of time and capital trying to not let U.S. uh, leave the ABM treaty and develop and deploy the space-based missile defense. Uh, we have uh, Russian-Chinese proposal of a treaty prohibiting the placement of weapons in space and uh, threat or use of force against outer space objects. Um, it's still on the conference of disarmament, which means it's just, you know, hibernated because nothing happens in the conference of disarmament. Um, I would say it's a feature, not a bug. Um, Russia understands that U.S. is not interested, and it doesn't make sense to have this treaty without the United States. So in that sense, it's could as well just stay at conference of disarmament. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make sense to have like separate conference to pass a treaty and then we'll just uh, do nothing. Um, one of the things U.S. would probably want uh, in the, this sense uh, would be uh, something on A.S.A.T. and A.S.A.T. light weapons, mm-hmm. um, but Russia never said uh, those are, you know, banned from discussion. Um, there was a statement, for example, uh, by, a while ago uh, in 1992, by Boris Yeltsin, who said, like, let's uh, destroy all the set weapons we have and then have an agreement prohibiting them from the future, uh, which US wasn't really that interested at that point of time. Um, so there is, you know, possibility of discussion here as well. So it just was quite briefly and uh, to get an impression of things we could be um, talking about, it's obviously really complicated. And again, it's obviously that we would not have time to negotiate any of this in the time which is left uh, by the end of the New Start Treaty. So the logical option coming from here would be that we need to extend a New Start and then we would be better off engaging in all of those other issues and then to close us up um, just briefly again about uh, what do we do if we don't have uh, New START left if it expires in February 2021 well uh, first of all we would not have any nuclear arms control agreement uh, between Russia and the United States since uh, for the first time since 1972 Um, it doesn't mean we never had Uh, those in-betweens, for example, when SALT-1 expired or when START-1 expired. Uh, But uh, at that time, we had other things like ABM or something. At least we had something. This would be the last uh, piece holding us together. Um, I would uh, do a shout-out to a great report uh, by CNA, uh, Nuclear Arms Control Without a Treaty. Uh, which Vince Manso edited, which looked a lot of the, a lot of those things in depth, so how we deal with uh, the situation. Uh, but general and uh, briefly, what we would like to do if this happens, we would like to come up with a joint understanding that we would still want to have some limitations on our uh, nuclear forces, and we are not interested in all-out nuclear weapons race. Uh, we can. Produce a joint statement, that the parties will be complying with new start limits until there is a new treaty and there were examples of those uh, in the 70s and then in, in uh, 2000s, mm, we would be very smart to start negotiating a new treaty immediately uh, because those take time and uh, we should be negotiating a treaty even if you don't believe that it's currently feasible uh, to enter into force. Uh, even if the people would say oh, Congress would not ratify arms control treaty and the current conditions, that might be very well so, but even if you have a signed treaty, it gives you a lot of um, opportunities. Uh, we, as I said, did not have any, we're not supposed to have any information exchanges um, when the START one expired and New START has not yet entered into force. But in the New START treaty, there was like a big chunk of uh, verification measures which started immediately upon signature without notification by Congress. Mm-hmm. Uh, so y- you can actually squeeze a lot of uh, existing instruments if you have them and if you want to. Um, if there is any understanding at least of what we want to get out of this new treaty, it maybe sh- should be a good idea to come up with um, um, initial understanding like in a statement, presidential statement as we actually also used to do before and also there was a number of um, standalone agreements, political agreements which are now part of New START treaty but which were signed independently in 88 and 89 uh, it's agreement on notification of launches of SMBMs and SLBMs and agreement on notification of major strategic exercises which would supposedly continue after the new start expires so reconfirming them would be uh, crucial and continue using them would be crucial. Um, I would also say that probably this second part about verification information exchange will not be possible without agreement on limits. There is a strong um, idea in Russian expert circles and I as far understand as Russian government that you do not verify with like you, you need to have an something you are verifying if you don't have any limits and you're just exchanging information about your nuclear forces it, it's it's not a verification it's not actually bringing you that much because it's just like uh, and again um, mm, Russia sees uh, transparency in a lot of things as uh, something it gives away, uh, and it's, it sees it as an asymmetry. Russia can get much more information from the West than the West can get from Russia from the open sources. So in that sense, giving out transparency without getting something back uh, is not really worth it. And uh, you can see this example in some of the conventional arms control agreements in Europe, and in some initiatives like IPNDV, for example, um, where Russia just doesn't believe that those things are uh, very important, per se. If we do agree on some limitations and we continue doing this political-wise, we can actually have a lot of things, we can create new things, we can even have inspections without legally binding treaties, we have examples in Vienna document, for example. we have already seen uh, Russia attempting to work through non-legally binding measures uh, on the INF range systems moratorium, for example, which would include a verification. It wouldn't be a treaty, but it would have some verification. We don't know which, but still it was proposed. Uh, and um, there are also other ways of managing competition, for example, mutual restraint, as you said. There is nothing prohibiting parties putting weapons into space, but there are no weapons into space because probably if someone did put them up there, then next day there will be some other putting them there. So it's all possible, but it's all very makeshift and uh, formal arms control treaties are much better because they're much much more stable uh, and uh, in the absence of formal uh, instruments, uh, lack of trust will be, which is huge, by the way, between other countries, in case someone haven't noticed, uh, will be (laughs) impacting this process even further. So uh, just to wrap this up, uh, very briefly, I guess I over, uh, oh yeah, I overdone my time. We really need negotiations uh, between U.S. and Russia on arms control. We have a huge and mounting number of issues to discuss. We do not have place to do this. We have strategic stability dialogue, uh, which happens twice a year. Uh, delegations spend day or two uh, discussing, and then it's nothing until the next half of the year, which is laughable for anybody who did or heard something about arms control. Um, in this format, there is no time and. It's, it's not fit to discuss anything substantially, so we should really be kicking this off. And uh, I hope that this uh, next round of arms control uh, strategic stability dialogue um, could be a place where you can agree to having something more sustainable. And I'll end here and I look forward to discussion. Okay, thank you very much, Andre. You've given us a lot to uh, chew
1: over. Um, so, to take our first cut at doing that, before now to Sharon.
3: Um, thank you. I, I don't have any formal prepared remarks, so I'm going to just respond to um, what I've heard. But I need to correct one thing in my bio. You, you said mm. I worked in DOD, and the truth is, I didn't. I worked in the Arms <coughs> Control and Disarmament Agency. Uh. There are some. Alumni here from ACTA, and so, you know, full disclosure: I'm more pro arms control. And, and again, so we may have more yeah, areas I, I, well, of agreement than here, not. Same here, yeah. Um, having said that, you know, um, there are three kind of threat reduction issues where U.S. and Russia, I think, are really on the same page: uh, Iran, North Korea, and we both. Hate the ban treaty, the (laughs) the treaty to prohibit nuclear weapons. So there's room for cooperation there. Um, I want to touch on three basic points. One is context, uh, second is incentives, and third is mechanisms. So, um, you know, when I look at arms control, and and you um, expanded it to beyond nuclear, because I think US and Russia have. There's just a full plate of um, things where we uh, should be talking. Um, But one of the, you you kind of, I don't know if it was an assumption or it's, to my mind it's not exactly an either or, where it's we have arms control or we have a terrible arms race. You're absolutely correct that I think um, a, a context or an environment in which we have stable uh legally binding arrangements is um it's a world that i'd rather live in (laughs) if only because we have we'll have established mechanisms for dialogue right so i mean we can see that for example in the inf treaty we weren't able to resolve our differences but that the the demise of that treaty took a long time and that's actually i think what we're uh Pardon the pun. Shooting for, which is to lengthen any kind of period uh, where things could sort of um, escalate. Um, But the question is, in in a post new start environment, whether it's twenty twenty one or twenty twenty six, whether we extend it or not, you know, are there other things, uh, other arrangements, non-legally binding mechanisms where we could lengthen the fuse. Um, I wanna talk just in, within the, the, in the issue of context. Um, which country has more incentives for arms control at the present? It's hard for me to say. I'm not gonna speak for the Trump administration. Um, it seems to me that um, there's a lot of noise uh, in the communications link right now, right? We're all sitting here in Washington. We understand what the political environment is, right? Uh, There's the Trump-Putin relationship, which is quite opaque to many of us. Um, There's uh, Mr. Trump's policy priorities, which arms control, frankly, is not very high. Trade is a lot higher. There are his Political priorities um, 2020 is an election year how could we forget that um, and so and then of course there is impeachment so the the bandwidth even within the US government for entertaining something serious right now I would say is quite narrow um, Nonetheless, I completely agree with you that there are a lot of these issues looming. They may not be, you know, when you look at INF, are we, is Russia going to deploy missiles right away? Um, Well, maybe sooner than the US will. Uh, But the US is constrained somewhat by, you know, by time. We don't have a, a missile that's ready to deploy. We're also constrained by budgets. Um, one thing you didn't mention, uh, which was the, the Putin speech, um, where he unveiled all these nuclear capabilities fully, you know, half to two-thirds of that speech on the front end was about economic priorities. And so there's a real question, I think, um, in the minds of some U.S. experts, uh, how far are you going to go? Um, we may perceive that some of these weapons are you know, very much bargaining chips, um, w- which you did say. Um, on uh, There's a global context, however, and you know, I sit on the science and security board for the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, and newsflash, next week, we will be unveiling, um, as we do every year, the setting of the doomsday <coughs> clock. And U.S.-Russia relations and arms control, whether there is arms control or not, and I don't think I'm revealing anything secret here, it's a big component of of our discussions. Um, And so, you know, putting Mr. Trump's priorities aside and and, uh, Mr. Putin's, there's, uh, you know, given that we have 90 to 95% of the world's nuclear warheads, uh, there's kind of a global responsibility, I think, to um, you know at least try harder. Maybe those strategic stability talks should be a monthly thing uh, rather than twice a year. On the question of China, um, maybe some, we have a very expert audience here and I'd like to hear your views, whether this issue of trilateral arms control is uh, an excuse not to do anything, or really genuine. Um, when we, uh, and, and full disclosure, we three are involved in a track two uh, discussion um, on strategic stability, and, and I've also done some with the Chinese, and the tenor of the discussions is quite different. Um, even though the U.S. looks at both, you know, now has a, a kind of I don't know what you would call it, um, or the, a narrative <laughs> that says we are in great power competition with both Russia and China. Well, Russia and China are vastly different countries with vastly different capabilities, whether you look at nuclear weapons or economic um, potential, and the gist of the conversations with the Russians is quite different than with the Chinese at least in my experience. For the Russians it's kind of like, well, we no longer have this kind of ideological conflict. What are what are we doing here? You know, or we we should be working a little harder to reduce the the threats. And with the Chinese it's a, a very different conversation. It is not so much about threat reduction. There is not a long established kind of dialogue. And so one of the questions I have is, you know, for arms control, this is very much in Russia's interest, even from a psychological perspective, because we, you have been engaged, uh, or Russia and the US have been engaged in this kind of superpower uh, dialogue over many, many years to reduce these risks that we invented. Um, that is not the case with China, and so I think that kind of disconnect or, or mismatch um, is gonna be a, a fairly difficult hurdle for at least U.S. negotiators. I haven't heard a great um, uh, solution or, or uh, proposal, as, as you have not, on how do we, how do we marry these <laughs> these flavors uh, when both the Russians and the Chinese are kind of looking at us saying, you know, what's going on here? Um, The last thing is on, that I wanted to mention, was on mechanisms and capacity. Um, I think for arms control, um, the US and the Russians still have people in place uh, who are, you know who do we we do verification work, uh, you know in our labs in your labs. Um, it's not apparent to me that the well, it's pretty clear the Chinese are not up to speed on that. And so one uh, area where we might um, think about cooperation is in the the verification sphere. And I know that the State Department and the Nuclear Threat Initiative have this. In, uh, what's it called? IPN. IPNV. International Partnership for nuclear disarmament verification which um, I don't believe the Russians or the Chinese have uh, no. participated or have really engaged in so um, that could be if Russia truly has an incentive uh, to move further with the. US than you know kind of corralling or persuading or cajoling the Chinese uh, and yourselves. Um, to engage yeah. in that I think would be helpful. I'm gonna leave my remarks there because I know i um, sure we have a lot of questions from the audience. Mm-hmm.
2: Just briefly yeah, respond. did you want respond? to yes. respond? Yes, okay. <laughs> so just uh, just briefly on, um, I'll start with the last point on uh, verification. As I said, Russia is general not a huge fan, uh, especially in the abstract. Um, but um, and yeah, IPNDV is seen as US, like, led initiative, which is uh, U.S. has for its own goals. Uh, What I thought could be interesting is that if you're not uh, trying to push China in this trilateral arms control, which they're not going into anyway, before that became popular, uh, there was a lot of talk about how we engage China, how we teach them how we do arms control because they don't have experience, they don't have people, they don't have knowledge. Uh, So maybe a more interesting thing would be, let's say, can we organize something like IP and DV, but uh, US and Russia for China, show them how we do inspections, maybe bring them to a mock uh, place and show them how we inspect each other, how we check the warheads, how we check uh, that no information is leaked in the process. Uh, That would probably make a bigger, cause like IP and DV is basically when we're gonna do future total nuclear disarmament, that will be a very important instrument in how you um, move on with that. Um, I'm not sure I see uh, total nuclear disarmament anytime soon. If anything, we might find ourselves is increasing nuclear arsenals if we don't uh, solve some of those issues. So maybe that would be more uh, interesting for China, for Russia, and for the United States, frankly. Uh, When you say who benefits the most from nuclear arms control, I mean, it's a a very complicated question because uh, the governments and the states are not unitary actors and uh, there are people in the United States who believe that the US greatly benefits from uh, nuclear arms control. People at DOD, Mm -hmm. uh, people at states, so on and so forth. And there are people in Moscow who really don't like arms control, who think that you shouldn't do anything like this with, with the US. In the expert community, uh, they, there was this um, uh, report by Professor Karganov from High School of Economics, uh, widely uh, discussed in the West because it was translated into English, and uh, that's the only way people like find out there are some discussions in Russia. Uh, but also in the governmental level, as I said, there was a big discussion in uh, Russian government. Well, discussion in Russian government: should you exhibit avant-garde? And there are people who are saying you should not—it's not covered. This is our new system. This is our Trump uh, card—no uh, pun intended—and like we shouldn't, but other people say no, no, no. We should do this. Mm, uh, yeah, I, I got to this point about internal politics and living in DC for the last couple of months. I, yeah, I can see there are some issues with internal politics, but like those things, like politics changes. Had we been talking in the first Reagan. Uh, you know, term, and we got the information he was elected, He would say like, it's we're all gonna die. There's gonna be a war. There's no chance there's gonna be any arms control. But you know, people change, politics change, and doing some groundwork, at least discussing what we should be talking about, and maybe finding approaches for what we uh, should be solving. Uh, it's a good thing to have when and if the uh, politics changes. Okay,
1: Um, I've got questions, but we have about half an hour and we have uh, a large and pretty distinguished audience in here, so I'm going to let them ask the questions. Uh, Please wait for me to acknowledge you. Uh, We have microphones that should be going around, so um, wait until you have a microphone, and then when you get the microphone, please use it to ask a question uh, that is something that ends in a question mark, uh, and be brief in doing it, so okay, sir, right here. Owen, please identify yourself.
4: Oh. Michael Gordon, Wall Street Journal. I have a very specific question about the Russian position. Um, for some time, the uh, Russian Federation was, had its own concerns about a new start and had to do with conversion yep. procedures, and the assertion was that the procedures for converting Trident missile tubes and B-52H bombers. They couldn't find cruise missiles, that these were not irreversible. That w- and, they were inadequate. And Ryabkov talked about this. It was a big issue in the BCC. Um, there was a Russian paper that was presented on Capitol Hill, um, which was um, became known. Um, is the Russian side now, th- I don't hear this much about this issue anymore. Is the Russian side prepared to put aside this dispute over conversion? in order to get New START extension, which seems to be a higher priority now for Moscow.
2: Uh, Yeah, exactly. So uh, it was an issue, it still is an issue. Russia keeps rising it at the BCC. But uh, again, there was a political decision made in uh, Moscow that New START is a higher priority and Russia is ready for clean extension uh, with no strings attached, and we'll continue discussing this issue in the, like, procedures permitted by the treaty. So again, uh, maybe that's uh, a referral to who needs the new START extension more. But uh, yeah, that was uh, another point when Russia said, okay, we we are going along, we agree with the extension.
1: Okay. Uh, Back here.
5: Greg Tillman, Arms Control Association Board. During the 1980s, uh, Moscow was uh, obviously very concerned about the Pershing II ballistic missile uh, exaggerating its range actually uh, estimating it at 2,500 kilometers. But, but understanding that with its accuracy and German basing that it posed a, a strategic threat to the Soviet Union. And you mentioned that Russia still sees uh, a difference between a European deployed uh, INF system as having a strategic impact on, on Russia uh, rather than the other way around. Does this mean that there is an opening for considering a ban on just the ballistic missile uh, capabilities, uh, that part of the uh, INF Treaty, since uh, the U.S., only the U.S. Army seems to have this uh, several year vision of a 3,000 to 4,000 kilometer range uh, ballistic missile? And the Russians don't seem to be eager to uh, deploy an IRBM system themselves.
2: Right, it's a good question. Uh, and Then again, how can it be formalized? The treaty is an agreement, as I understand, and as a part of moratorium, like maybe we should have a moratorium on ballistic missiles. Only uh, when uh, President Putin announced Russia's step to respond to US withdrawal from the NF treaty, he mentioned to Missiles, one was land based caliber, which is cruise missile, and the other is new long range hypersonic missile, which uh, subsequently was announced to be Zircon, which is another cruise missile. So both of those systems seem to be cruise missile, and Russia is not planning to deploy any uh, intermediate range ballistic missiles, though of course there's always the thing of Ares 26 lurking in the background, which was light uh, Russian ICBM, uh, which with some tweaking you can make an uh, intermediate range uh, ballistic missile, but no plans or no information, on nothing on this um, issue. So I would say that it's something we should discuss. It's an interesting uh, idea, but yeah, totally. Bannon ballistic missiles, they are fast. The thing with cruise missiles is, you know, they, they fly like hours if you launch them from, from somewhere else. Ballistic missiles. If you deploy them in the Baltics, the time to get to St. Petersburg, for example, would be minutes, and mm-hmm. that would actually um, leads you to fear about your, you know, security, but also for your capability to launch a retaliatory strike. Mm-hmm. If your command center is a hit in a matter of minutes and you don't have time to react, that that's a problem for you. Then you would want to have uh, the same systems to. Uh, hold its risk other side command centers, uh, which again was something P- President Putin mentioned, like putting those Zircon missiles on submarines and putting them somewhere next to the U.S. coast, so, you know, to put U.S. in a um, similarly uh, uncomfortable position. So, frankly, I don't think we should be going that direction. We've already been there once. Uh, we didn't like it very much in the Euro missile crisis. So, yeah, I would I would agree. Uh,
0: Shea Senright, Physicians for Social Responsibility.
4: Uh, Could you discuss the uh, potential for resumption of official lab-to-lab talks and what role that could play within arms control?
2: I don't know enough about uh, lab-to-lab talk to comments on those. As far as I remember, uh, lab-to-lab talks were frozen actually by the US side after Ukraine. So uh, together with like uh, peaceful nuclear energy cooperation and uh, things like that. So it would be again for the U.S. to unfreeze uh, those uh, negotiations. I would see Russia agreeing to them uh, because Russia agrees to pretty much every possibility of contact with the United States nowadays, not that it's helping, but still. Uh, So yeah, um, I'm not sure about what specific projects they could be working on, uh, that's, that's slightly out of my area of expertise, but you're right, we've been doing some work together. And uh, I'm not sure if labs are involved, there probably are uh, things like um, HEU to LEU and research reactors uh, uh, modification, that, that's something, there is some, something still ongoing uh, between Russia and United States on that front, but not really my area of expertise. Good morning, my name is Katrina Kirtisova. I'm a fellow at the Kennan Institute of the Wilson Center. My research focuses on the Arctic, and I was expecting to um, hear a little bit uh, about the region. You've mentioned there, you expect, or there's a possibility for a missile race in Europe and Asia, but you haven't mentioned the Arctic. So what we see is a growing uh, security dilemma, action-reaction dynamics. Uh, Do you think there is a prospect for an arms race in the region? And what measures or treaties do we have in place both for the
4: conventional and nuclear arms control uh, in the region? Thank you very much.
2: Whatever is happening now in the Arctic is mainly conventional. Uh, So everybody is saying that they don't want to militarize the Arctic, and everybody is holding bigger and bigger exercises to learn how to fight in the Arctic. Um, Russia has uh, recently been increasing its uh, conventional forces Part of it is mainly renaming existing structures. Uh, so like you had a couple of things there, we we'll would just call it a division, uh, which in reality is not a division. Uh, but uh, there is this uh, feeling that Arctic, as you're right, will be growing in importance. Um, on the nuclear front, Arctic would be an issue, obviously, that if we're going to have nuclear exchange, our missiles will be flying over the Arctics and uh, some of uh, United States missile defense assets, like radars, are in the Arctic. Um, but frankly, I don't see any separate um, nuclear, at least, role for the Arctic. It, it has the same uh, laws and the same problems as everybody else. Um, on conventional weapons, actually there are some discussions, uh, including in the Arctic Council as far as I understand of limited, uh, limiting military activity in the Arctic and try to manage this diplomatically, but not, not on the nuclear front, maybe luckily. So uh, there was um, um, recent, um, well maybe not that recent anymore, an explosion at Nyanoksa, uh which is um, Supposedly uh, or allegedly was uh, a test of, uh, well not a test, it was recovery of uh, mm-hmm. nuclear powered cruise missile, which exploded, mm-hmm. um, that luckily didn't have a lot of radioactive release. It didn't uh, get out to neighboring states, there was no uh, at least a big uh, radiation um, uh, recorded in neighboring states. Uh, but, yeah, um, again, uh, the test uh, site where Russia used to do nuclear testing before the moratorium kicked in is also in the Arctic, and uh, if we move into a really bad place where we might even see restarting of nuclear testing, that would in- impact uh, the local, uh, well, um, ecosystems well, maybe not necessarily because it's underground testing, but it's not really good to, to hang out in an island where you're doing missile testing any, anyway. So, yeah, it's like a general idea. That the better relations, the better for the Arctic, the worse relations. The Arctic wouldn't mm-hmm. be insulated from, from this global fallout.
1: Any other
2: questions? I'm oh, yeah, just good
3: microphone. Marsha McGraw-Olive, John Hopkins Um You mentioned that there were several opponents um, to nuclear arms control among elites. <laughs> Are there any advocates? Is there a lobby anywhere, including in public opinion, for greater dialogue on nuclear arms? Well,
2: the biggest proponent for nuclear arm dialogue is President of Russia, Vladimir Putin, who on his first call with President Trump, as far as we understand from the leaked um, transcripts, proposed to extend a new start, uh, which was rejected by the President Trump, but uh, nevertheless. So generally, uh, general official uh, discourse in Russia is that arms control is something good. You should try to stick to it. You should try to salvage it and you should try to continue doing it. So when, some, when I'm saying that some people are against arms control, that would be still a minority, uh, and that would be people which would still not be the mainstream normally. So that's maybe why Caragano is uh, somewhat more interesting, because he is a mainstream, uh, despite his um, sometimes contrarian um, foreign policy views. Um, foreign ministry, as traditional being a supporter of arms control. Uh, in the defense ministry, uh, you would uh, find people who are specifically working in arms control who still are very much in favor of it. And uh, for example, there was this uh, issue with um, Open Skies Treaty, uh, which is now apparently again under the pressure and US might leave it. Uh, but at some point when uh, the previous news cycle was kicking in in November, I guess, mm-hmm. Uh, the head of department at the um, DOD who is in charge of inspections and verification said, like, well, even if U.S. leaves, it's an important mechanism might stay uh, in the treaty even without the United States, which tells you something, because it's not like only tit for tat with the United States, but uh, we also seen that on some of the issues, uh, Russia was not um, um, very, you know, um, invested in preserving everything. Uh, we remember the Uh, Plutonium Management Dispositional Agreement, uh, which Russia left uh, as a response to U.S. actions, uh, including on um, uh, stopping contacts and stopping peaceful nuclear cooperation. Um, So there are some treaties which are more important than others, The New START would definitely be one of those uh, for a number of reasons, including symbolic value. Uh, But overall, I wouldn't say it's that bad in Russia. Like uh, unlike the United States, Russia has uh, at least in the foreign ministry and in defense ministry, in a lot of senses, career people who have been working those issues all their lives. So if you've been doing arms control of your life, and you, like you would want it to continue because that's what you do and you sort of like what you're doing. Um, so I would I would say that it's not too bad. Okay.
3: Hi, uh, my name is Alex Lebowitz, uh, formerly with the State Department. Um, I th- basically think that the approach t- to bring in China is, uh, is a way of sabotaging the whole thing, but if you were to bring China into such negotiations, I'm wondering if either of you has some idea, what might be, you know, are there things that might be of interest to China and to the other parties that might You know, imagining that such a thing could happen that might be uh, worth talking about or that might, you know, provide some kind of
0: subject for uh, negotiations. Thank you.
2: So, again, um, I cannot speak for China, Uh, definitely not for China. But uh, from my interaction with Chinese colleagues and from what I was uh, generally getting, it's very Unclear. What does US want in this situation? Does US want to limit Chinese strategic systems? That would be weird because China has very few of them, especially like ICBMs. It's like you know, hundred and something. Does US wants to limit uh, Chinese non-strategic systems or intermediate range systems? But in that case, is US ready to limit its own uh, systems? is U.S. ready to put uh, its uh, sea launch cruise missiles on the table, for example, or air launch cruise missiles on the table? Uh, Is U.S. interested in Chinese tactical nuclear weapons? But that would mean like, are we discussing our own tactical nuclear weapons now? We never discussed them and uh, I I noted that we'll have a lot of trouble even starting to to get into it. Is U.S. willing to discuss conventional only Chinese missiles? So, uh, I feel that from the Chinese side there is this you know, trying to figure out what U.S. want, not being able to do that, and then just deciding it's not serious, that U.S. just doesn't know what it wants. Maybe it should just figure out what it wants and then come up and uh, talk to us. And um, yeah, um, the bigger problem here is that apparently, uh, my U.S. colleagues can uh, correct me if I'm wrong, what the US really wants is to change uh, or shift this uh, general um, change of balance of power in the Asia Pacific where China is growing bigger and stronger and it's really hard to do this as a part of arms control agreements because like they don't really work that way you cannot really stop country from being powerful by an arms control agreement and uh, that's how I see the problem you're trying to push Something much bigger in in a mechanism which doesn't really fit for this purpose. Maybe trade talks would be a better place to discuss uh, U.S.-Chinese problems than arms control talks. But again, that's just my guess. Maybe Sharon can comment on that better.
3: No, I think uh, you're absolutely right. (laughs) But I don't I don't have any uh, insider information on what the you know whether the United States whether the government has identified specific asks um, from the Chinese. I mean, I think we would like dialogue, we would like transparency much the same way as we'd like transparency from the Russians, but the Chinese have a similar approach to transparency. And, And I thought it was interesting that you made the point about what other countries can get from the US from our open sources, and it's a lot you know as someone now outside the government uh i always think well it could always be more right but when you look at the the kind of wealth of information it is quite a lot Um, china is the only one of the five nuclear weapon states that has not uh you know we think they're not producing fissile material for nuclear weapons but they've never agreed on a moratorium the rest you know, we've produced so much fissile material for weapons, we don't know what to do with it. Um, so, I mean, that could be a very tiny step, uh, something that we'd ask for. And I think mostly we want a ceiling, because um, what we are uh, maybe afraid of or our perception is that, you know, as China um, thinks about using its considerable wealth <laughs> to... Increase its <laughs> nuclear forces. Um, you know, if it sort of makes that decision to move beyond a, a minimal credible deterrent, then um, you know there's there's nothing to to hold them back from really ramping up. But I think you're absolutely right. It's uh, I think our you know we're kind of groping in the dark um, to somehow put some kind of constraints around a China that is, is much more powerful, if not in the nuclear sphere, but definitely in the conventional sphere than it was in the past.
1: Any other questions? Okay, I have a couple of things that I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on since um, our audience seems to have tapped out. Um, so two really, one, Sharon raised the issue of the issues of Iran and North Korea. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the U.S. and Russian approach to nonproliferation and counterproliferation, um, to what extent there is still uh, cooperation around that issue, to what extent the U.S. and Russia still share uh, a common vision around the nature of the proliferation challenge and about ways to, to deal with it. Um, of course, we know the U.S. having withdrawn from the, the JCPOA in Iran, their approaches on, on that narrow piece of the problem are different. But if you could talk about it maybe at a, at a broader level. And then the second thing I wanted to, to raise is the role of arms control dialogue in U.S.-Russian relations at large. Um, we were kind of joking uh, back in the green room before uh, about how arms control is no longer high politics in the United States. Um, that there was uh, during the Cold War kind of prestige uh, associated with it. This was seen as an existential issue. Um, It was at the top of the political agenda. Um, I think, to a certain degree, that remains true today in Russia, because this is an area where Russia maintains a kind of, if not precise, parity, then at least equal standing to the United States. Whereas in the United States, this issue is seen as one issue among many. Um, not only in the in the bilateral US Russia context but more broadly arms control is just one uh, challenge that we face among many and so does that kind of lack of of parallelism in terms of the way that arms control is viewed in Washington and Moscow create an obstacle to Further dialogue for example on a on a post new start agreement, uh, or is the fact that the u s just kind of you know, considers this one problem on the in the entire universe of problems mean that um, there's the u s is just not going to be as interested in this in this problem going forward as Russia is going to be regardless of political conjunctures in
2: Washington. <laughs> So on the first question, do we still have joint approaches to um, um, non-proliferation? I mean, we have them in a sense that we all agree that we shouldn't really have much more or any more nuclear weapon states. We have more than enough. Um, Russia and um, US has always differed on approaches uh, and the methods and how you really get uh, this effect. Russia has also always stated that look, it's really hard to persuade someone not to do something if it's want to do something. Um, You might want to give something in return, some carrots, not only sticks. Uh, Sometimes U.S. administration agreed with this, uh, and this is actually when U.S. was making some breakthroughs in. Uh, non-proliferation we had a great framework uh, we had jcpa we had other things which at least frozen uh, the proliferation concerns well other people would say we should just press uh, the country until it breaks and that would be our strategy which apparently is current strategy towards Iran. uh in that sense uh I would say that Russia believes that it's actually a counterproductive strategy, that you would incentivize countries to go nuclear if the only chance for survival for them would be to build nuclear weapons. Um, I guess um, we can maybe learn more from each other's approaches if we'll be willing to learn, but um, currently, U.S. approaches to both DPRK and to Iran are almost, you know, completely different from what Russia is proposing. Russia and China has tabled a resolution in Security Council, uh, giving some um, relief from sanctions to DPRK. Uh, Russia and their remaining parts of the JCPOA are advocating to uh, giving uh, Iran some benefits, economic benefits, so it could. Get back to the uh, implementation of the deal. Uh, so, in that sense, uh, I would I would say there are more disagreements than than agreements. Um, of course, um, if there would be some new, completely unheard before threat, uh, it might unite uh, Russia and uh, U.S. at some point while they will figure out what to do, but then, I don't know, if we get Myanmar trying to seek nuclear weapons, for example, um, but once U.S. decides, which is quite possible, that you should use the, t- the most tough uh, sanctions, right, of military attack without any off-ramp, I guess at this point the, the points uh, would diverge and Russia would um, say that this is a counterproductive Approach on uh, role of arms control in bilateral politics and how it was uh, high politics, but not anymore. Uh, I would say it's a big um, consequence of that Russia is not high politics anymore. It's not on the arms control in Russia. It's like anything with Russia. United States, United States don't care about Russia that much, which is frankly one of the um, lessons from DC from my. Uh, Stay here, um, you're right in a sense that for Russia it's still a big power status and equal status to the United States uh, and it's still there, it'll probably be still there for some time, but I'm not sure who in Russia would be the most, you know, prestigious job. Would it be to have arms control negotiations with U.S. in Geneva or have uh, inter-Libyan negotiations in Moscow, or inter-Syrian negotiations in Kazakhstan. So a lot of things which Russia has been doing in its foreign policy um, are starting to decouple from this, you know, U.S.-led uh, worldview. Russia has been doing a lot of things. Some of them are not, you know, in this sphere of U.S.-Russian relationships. And uh, I would imagine that would be changing more and more. So at some point, maybe because every time you hear President Putin saying like we want arms control, we want dialogue, we want to engage, next thing he would say, but we will take all the measures that our security would not be diminished under any scenarios. You want arms control, we do arms control. You don't want arms control, fine. We'll build new missiles and you know uh, protect ourselves uh, in this way. So maybe. Putting some, uh, you know, adding uh, some uh, priority to this uh, in the US would be good Uh, because at some point maybe Russia just say, like, okay, screw it, we don't care anymore, we have other things to do. And that would be bad for for the world, I guess.
0: Hi, Mark Bucknam from the National War College. Uh, As you know, the United States stopped producing new uh, nuclear weapons pits many years ago and is now just beginning to try to reconstitute that capability. And if they're successful and on time, maybe a decade from now we'll have a modest capability. Meanwhile, our Department of Energy has reported that Russia has maintained a capability vastly larger than what it would need just for new start purposes. Um, Do you think it's possible we could get arms control uh, to limit... The production of new nuclear weapons pits
2: well that's uh, the whole idea uh, aimed at this called fmct as you well know uh it's again not moving uh, anywhere at the conference of disarmament for various reasons uh as far as i understand um so we know there are concerns from the Chinese side about FMCT, that maybe they don't have enough uh, weapon grade material in case they would decide to run pump something. I have never heard of any concerns on the U.S. side. We have a lot of nuclear material. We produce a lot of uh, you know plutonium and highly enriched uranium. So I guess we can... You're trying to say, can we do this bilaterally without other countries waiting for other countries to come in, or you'd want to have a, some narrower initiative? You could maybe specify what, what your interest would be in.
0: I could envision that being a bilateral agreement, um, but, but also it is potentially something to build upon uh, to, to seek perhaps uh, Chinese participation as well. Um, Hard hard to imagine, a little harder for me to imagine that, but um, is it even feasible for a bilateral U.S.-Russian agreement that would be verifiable, do you think?
2: I mean, you can propose it. The... The problem, one of the problems with the um, US-Russian arms control currently is that you don't get too much of the proposals of any kind uh, from the US side, especially cooperative proposals. Um, So again, I guess this is something you can very well discuss. And we had uh, the experience of uh, plutonium disposition agreement when we were getting rid of excess plutonium. So that obviously is possible, and we've done it before. I don't know the specifics, but again I don't have any feeling in Russia that it needs you know to produce a lot of uh, nuclear weapon uh, cores, or what have you. again, um, a lot of times when you talk about uh, the Russia is producing those new uh, dual capable missiles uh, and um, that somehow implies that they part of them big part of them, is nuclear because they are dual-capable. I, would, I wouldn't think so. I would probably say that majority of them would be conventional uh, because uh, this is something you can actually use, and Russia has been shown to use them in Syria, for example, and in other places. Um, Dual-capability uh, is something which is a nice feature you add to your systems, and you can maybe become a little bit scarier but it's not like all of the Russian calibers are equipped with, uh, you know, nuclear warheads, or all of uh, Russian, uh, you know, 100 ones are nuclear uh, tipped. So um, I, I don't see in principle uh, problems in discussing this. Then, of course, uh, how does it play into wider picture and how we can, you know, move this forward? But sure, why not?
3: Can I ask you a follow-up question? When you talk about pit production, right? I mean, we're not talking necessarily about we're not talking about fissile material production. Okay. We're talking about either you know refurbishing existing mm-hmm. warheads or maybe you know life extension, that kind of thing, that is way, way down the range in terms of the kinds of limits that we've done in arms control. Now, Under a fissile material production cutoff treaty, there's been some talk, just talk, of saying, well, why don't we include tritium production in there? Because that would get at the, you know, like, eventually your warheads would become inoperable, right? Those that use tritium for boosting. Um, That would even be easier than, I, I would think, than pit production. Um, you could, you know, if we closed facilities, I mean, that's, it, it's a really interesting question, but I th- would think that it would be really very intrusive. Um, and <laughs> would the U.S., even if you could get the U.S. and Russia to agree, then would they do that outside of a, a more multilateral agreement, right? Because then you would really be just Handcuffing yourselves. Um, Yeah, it's, I guess, one path towards nuclear disarmament. A long, 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 you know, glide path. Interesting.
1: Okay, Um, on that sort of speculative note, uh, I think we've sort of reached (laughs) our time limit. So thank you all for uh, coming again this morning, and thanks to Andre and, and Sharon.
0: Thanks for joining us for another curated conversation from CSIS. Tune in next week for more, and remember, you can explore all of our events online at csis.org.